0: Sunrise or sunset? Sunset. Coffee or tea?
1: Coffee.
0: Much less hesitation than anyone I've spoken to, I must say. I don't know okay. what that means.
1: Decisive. I'm a decisive lady. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this episode of Fuerza, Inside the Mind of the Ridden Athlete, is made possible by our title sponsor, Team Adair Cross Country Mortgage. With the Affinity program, Hopper Riders and their family can save up to $2,200 when financing your new home or existing home. With your dedicated loan officer, Team Adair provides personal and professional service. Myself, me, my family, my wife, we financed our home in the summer of 2020 in the midst of COVID. And it was by far, by far the best experience we've ever had working with a lender. As a direct lender, their communication was prompt and professional, and we closed quickly. We have saved over $400 a month by financing, and let me tell you, this has really helped our family and our home business during these difficult times. For information and to get started, go to crosscountrymortgage.com affinity grasshopper, or click on the link on grasshopper webpage, grasshopperventureseries.com. Our guest today, Kate Courtney, is a professional mountain bike racer with the Scott Sram team. During the World Cup season and her first year as an elite racer, Kate placed in the top 10 at 6 World Cups and finished the season in 8th place overall. The year ended on a high note when Kate came from behind to win the 2018 Elite XC World Championship in Lenzerheide, Switzerland. And with this victory, Kate became the first American in 17 years to win an elite mountain bike world championship. And only the fourth American woman to do so. In 2019, Kate had the opportunity to join Scott Stram team and continue to chase big goals with incredible support. As a member of the Scott Stram team, Kate had her most successful season yet in 2019. She won three World Cup X-C events, two World Cup XCC events, and went on to secure the 2019 overall UCI Mountain Bike World Cup title becoming the first American to do so in 17 years. With her fifth place at World Championships, Kate also secured her spot as a member of the US Olympic team for Tokyo 2020 and competed in this past Olympics in 2021. Born and raised in Marin County, Northern California, Kate is a former Nike racer and a graduate of Stanford University. Join us as we talk about the Olympics, training, incremental gains, mental grit, social media, of course, growing up and riding in NorCal, and her goals for season 2022. Stay tuned for more. So, Kate, welcome to another episode of Fuerza Inside the Mind of the Ridden Athlete.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. Good to be here.
0: Um, I appreciate you making time for this, and I know that we we are are sharing this uh, wet winter together in NorCal. And uh, judging by your posts, it looks like you are uh, at home training. Is that true?
1: Yeah, home home for most of this off season so far, which has been great.
0: Yeah, and uh, do you this time of year? I noticed that you're spending a lot of time in the gym. Are you finding yourself to able to do social rides with with friends in the area? Just uh, a little bit less keeping track? Or are you into the full swing of your training mode now?
1: Yeah, definitely back in the full swing of my training mode. This is where social media can be a little challenging. Uh, it's it's much easier to take photos and videos in the gym. And we often use that actually as feedback. So I train in the gym with my, um, with my trainer twice a week. And I'm there for, you know, two or three hours between strength training and physical therapy. And he'll take videos actually to, to give me feedback. So kind of watch what my knees are doing, what my hips are doing and correct my form. And then those end up on social media oftentimes. So yeah, far majority of my training is actually done on the bike. Um, typically not as easy to capture, but still really enjoying that time in the gym.
0: Yeah. So speaking of of training at home and, and so you may not know this because a few years ago, but I, teach at a high school here in Sonoma County and started up a mountain bike team in El Molino. And I remember seeing you racing with, uh, I think you went to Branson, is that right? But a lot of your friends were. Drake. Yeah. And for me, so I think I raced from 92 to 2000 or something like that, racing mountain bikes and, you know, then started putting on the grasshopper series uh, started the mountain bike team, but to show up and that, those are when I was first seeing the events and, you know, how inspiring it is to see hundreds of athletes and, maybe a thousand parents of the support crew. Uh, and I just fell in love with mountain biking um, again and seeing that. And I, and I remember a, a big group in the varsity field with yourself and with, with a bunch of the ladies from Marin. Um, so it's apparently your freshman year, you started racing. Did you quickly say, this is it? That I wanted, I want to do this, or is it just like this is fun, let's do it for now? What what was that? What was that like when you first started r- riding and racing mountain bikes?
1: Yeah, I so I grew up riding casually on the weekend uh, with my dad a little bit, but it was never really a sport to me. It was kind of a, a weekend activity. And I thought of kind of more traditional sports as my athletic endeavors from soccer to ski racing, horseback riding, gymnastics, you name it. I probably tried it. Um, and was pretty mediocre, uh, until my freshman year, I was running cross country and started to have some success in these endurance sports. And I love cross country. My freshman year, it was the first time I'd kind of won any races that really mattered and, uh, was looking for a way to cross train in the spring. And I thought, okay, I don't want to run around a track. I love being out in nature. I love exploring the mountain and, how can I stay in shape and, you know, maximize my cross country season, my sophomore year? Uh, Instead, I joined the mountain bike team, started racing and thought, wow, this is everything I loved about running. But, you know, without, without any of the parts I didn't like about running and with so much more, there's... You know, not just the endurance aspect and um, kind of the fitness part, but there's so many other elements to mountain bike racing from technical descending to equipment to tactics. Uh, And for me, it kind of was this magical combination that I was really drawn to and excited to pursue and hope to improve in. Um, and then also I remember thinking that at my first race, my freshman year, it was just fun. Like I had fun in the race and with running, I had had a lot of fun training. I had, I had fun before the race. I had fun after the race, but the experience of racing itself was a little more type two fun for me at the time. It was like fun looking back on it, but not in the experience of the, of the race. Whereas mountain biking you know, from the moment the gun went off, that was almost the best part of doing it, was trying to piece together all of these different skills, whether it's, you know, attacking on a climb or being smooth on a descent, piecing those together under pressure uh, was this amazing experience that was not only very challenging, but also really, really fun. Uh, And I think from that moment on, my aspirations quickly turned away from cross-country running to cross-country mountain bike racing.
0: And then growing up at the base of TAM, you probably knew a little bit about the history of it and some of the trails. But so tell me about that, that discovery. Maybe you knew some of them from running, but once you could start in Ross, instead of just getting to TAM, next thing you know, you find yourself in Muir Beach and you're in the, in the, in the, in the, up to the Golden Gate Bridge. What was that like for you discovering and expanding uh, uh, your, your area? And tell, and with that, tell me about a couple of your favorite trails there in your backyard.
1: Yeah, I think you know I get asked a lot where my favorite place to ride a bike is, and it's always you know I think the answer for most people is wherever you learn to ride because you know that was that first experience of discovery and exploration uh, and challenging myself. I think you know what you describe being able to go a little further, a little faster every time is is really motivating and is still a huge part of what draws me to riding in Marin now is seeing oh wait that that loop used to take me three and a half hours. Now it takes me two. Uh, and, and those changes can be pretty just fun to reflect on and, um, you know, remind me how I fell in love with the sport, but also how far hopefully I've come. Uh, and yeah, I, I would say some of my favorite trails, we rode Tamarancho a lot, uh, in high school. That was one of our kind of main places that we went. And that's, you know, an obviously a great place to ride single track that's legal and fun, um, and a little bit more technical. Uh, and I would say now my favorite trail in Marin is uh, solstice. So that's kind of, you know, where I go to practice those technical skills. And also again, with that, you know, seeing how far you've come, I, I used to have to walk a lot of that trail. So it's nice to go back and, um, not just be able to hit all the sections but also enjoy it
0: yeah and i would imagine you're spending 90 percent of your time on your mountain bike there's good there's good road riding and i still have friends that invite me to come down and and do gravel rides and i tell them if i come down to marin it's going to be it's going to be on a mountain bike but it is it is quite a labyrinth to connect the different towns and with the trails and so uh it, it is fun to discover those um as you started riding because i mean there's the the strength of the women field or the number of strong women in the area is is quite astounding and i know with your training that you're not able to join as many rides but have you noticed that over the length of your career seeing that grow i mean it was strong when you were young and now into your into your years as an elite racer um what are your thoughts about uh, the the growth of women cycling in norcal
1: Yeah, I think in general, it's just amazing to see so many more women on bikes. From my perspective, I just see so many more people out, um, whether it's on the road, on the trails, whether they're racing or just, you know, trying it out. Um, I think that for me has been really exciting to see. And I'm hoping that the sport continues to grow and especially the women's side of things.
0: Yeah. Um, So I've. Transitioning from NorCal, then you then you went to Stanford. And I'm curious about your, your choice. You you took a break in, in your studies, but you still managed to graduate in just over four years and racing as elite athlete. As you're as you're racing and you're studying and you're able to have that focus on your racing, but at the same time you know that you're a serious student, it kind of takes a little bit of an edge off of your expectations of yourself just being a racer, and then when you graduated and be- went into the elite ranks, what was what was that like for you, having wrapped up college from Stanford, and then now everything's on racing?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, a lot happened from when I started at Stanford to when I graduated. I um, obviously raced juniors in high school and moved up to the U23 category my freshman year of college. And at the time, you know, it's easy to look back and say, oh, I was on this path to being a professional racer. But at the time, I was really a solid top 10 U23 and, of course, hoped to take the sport as far as I could. But it wasn't necessarily a, a career option at the time. Um, and I loved school. I loved learning. I was really excited about, you know, being a high school student in high school and and being able to apply and Um, get into a college I was really excited to attend. So at the time there was no kind of big deliberation. Uh, I treated my sport kind of like, you know, any, any varsity athlete uh, at school does and was able to um, have this other world of being a college student. And I think for me, you know, you, you mentioned that of course, you know, after graduating, it's all about cycling. And I think by the time I graduated, I was ready for that. And I, first of all, from a results perspective, I'd won the U23 World Cup overall. I'd, I'd won some national titles. I was uh, at a point where I could really support myself in a meaningful way doing this full time, um, which I think matters quite a bit. And was also you know, very clear that that's what I wanted to do. And I was excited for the opportunity to focus full time on it. Um, and, and that worked out really well for me. I think I was held back just the right amount as a college student and didn't get overtrained and end up hating cycling, um, but was able to really make consistent gains. So I went, um, I like telling the story because I, I was eighth overall my freshman year, my first year age 23. I was fourth overall the next year, second overall the next year, and I won the overall my fourth year at U23. So I was a super, super consistent racer and just got a little bit better every year and that added up. Um, But I think, you know, part of that was being really focused on, you know, one year at a time and not necessarily having this timeline or these expectations that, oh, I have to win this by this age and be here and do this, um, partially because I had school and that was plenty to have on my plate and something else to be focused on and excited about.
0: And would you say that that those incremental improvements led you to trusting the process as you've progressed in your career you mentioned that consistency moving up because i think the tendency as athletes is to to sit you know not sit on the couch maybe and dream of this goal but maybe not to make the steps and once you're an elite athlete you're you're able to see those marginal gains but i think for for younger folks to think oh this happens overnight, but that's, that's consistency over, um, you know, you know, five, six years.
1: Yeah. And, and probably even longer than that. I think, uh, you know, I've, I love training and I'm very data driven. I, I just like that side of it. There's a lot of different ways to approach the sport. And, you know, for some people it's way better to toss out the power meter and just, you know, do it their own way. But for me, that data has always been, um, motivating and, and kind of fun and something that I analyze with my coach and with my dad and, and pay attention to. Um, and I think that, you know, is is partially responsible for that consistency where, you know, I got from a young age, this training plan, I knew, you know, what I would have to do to get a little better tomorrow, a little better next week, a little better next month, uh, and where the kind of bar was set for being an elite racer. Uh, And that was a clear, clear path to kind of chip away at. But I also think, you know, it gets, it gets a lot more nuanced when you actually do achieve that top level. And um, then it becomes really about optimizing what you're doing and understanding not just, you know, what you're doing consistently, but why you're doing each thing consistently and how it's contributing to your progression as an athlete and to your, hopefully great performances in an upcoming season Um, because, you know, there there's one thing to get to the top and it's a whole nother thing to try to kind of replicate that success and uh, to continue to progress when, you know, that those big jumps of my U23 years are not going to be uh, indicative of the rest of my career. You know, you can do that from 17 to 19, just physiologically, there's a huge developmental adaptation and and you can up volume and you can really add, add, add. Uh, And then I think, you know, what comes with experience and age is not just maximizing, not just adding as much as you can to your plate, but really understanding what am I going to do and why am I going to do it to get me where I want to be as an athlete
0: yeah, and of those of of the pieces of the puzzle for you if you look at your your physical fitness, the strength conditions, the 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 hours on the bike, your mental prep, the technical skills, do you look at yourself and say this is my strength and this is an area to work on when you look at all the pieces or do you kind of lay them out on the table and look at pieces of each of each of those components that it takes to to be successful?
1: Yeah, I'd say definitely the latter, especially more recently in my career. I think um, early on, there were big categories to tap. So, you know, oh, I hadn't done anything for sleep. Let's this year, I'm going to focus on sleep or I hadn't, you know, really focused on strength training this year. I'm gonna deep dive. What what can I do? Who can I hire? Who can I work with? Who can I learn from? Uh, and at this stage of my career, hopefully, you know, I've been racing professionally for well, if you count my u23 years almost seven or eight years uh those big categories i've i've addressed in some way but there's huge opportunities to improve so one example i might give is is technical skill um technical skills a huge category there's within that so many little things are you trying to get better at riding a lines are you trying to get smoother is it braking is it cornering is it Uh, technical uphill? Is it downhill? Is it pedaling over rocky things? Is it riding in the wet? Is it, you know, any number of ways in which you can address technical skill? And so for me now, I think there's a real nuance to identifying those um, weak points within a category. So I wouldn't say, you know, technical skill is a weak point. I think that's a little broad, but maybe, you know, riding in the mud is something that I need to work on and, you know, put into place uh, a bunch of different ways that I can bring that skill up um, while still addressing maybe the things that are my strengths. So, you know, if uh, if rock gardens are my strength, it doesn't mean, okay, I'm only riding in the mud. I'm never doing a rock garden again, because chances are there's going to be races where both matter or one or the other matters. Um, and I think that's, one, what makes it really exciting as an athlete to continue to evolve, to continue to identify elements within those big categories you mentioned that can be improved um but also to recognize what are those fundamental uh core abilities in each of those that maybe you have maybe you don't but but need to be maintained
0: yeah so i know that this spring uh you stepped back a little bit you weren't getting the results that you wanted and you were leading up to the olympics and and you took a break um, I'm wondering what it's like when you have a goal like the Olympics and you have your your, your spring campaign leading up to that and you've, you have the numbers, you're looking at your data and you're seeing that that in some ways you need to reevaluate, to readjust, to prepare for this goal. What was that like for you at that time? Um, you know, I was following you and, and kind of paying attention to your schedule and your results and some of your interviews. Um, what's it like between you and your coaches and then to, to – to, look here, this is where we are. Maybe I didn't want to, this isn't the shape I was hoping to be at this point, but this is my goal. What, what's, what's going on behind the scenes for you at that time?
1: Yeah. I wouldn't say necessarily that I took a break. I, I broke my arm at one of the races. <laughs> right. Probably actually didn't take any days off, just rode with the cast. Uh. So there wasn't necessarily a natural stopping point in the year. Uh, I would say Unfortunately, the the way it works is really once you get to the spring, a lot of the work is in the bank and our season starts for me. I start training in November, November 1st every year. So November, December, January, February, March, that's kind of five months to what I say is like build the plane. You have the blueprint, you kind of build the plane and then you got to fly. And, um, you know, my spring campaign wasn't the best. I think I had high hopes and expectations for that spring. Um, But there were actually some great races in there. And I think in hindsight, uh, I I came into it really strong and and prepared, but, you know, through a combination of things, maybe, maybe not being on my best in a couple of races, having some crashes, having some mechanicals uh, and also doing all of the local races in Europe rather than uh, spring US campaign was, was a super different experience. It's, you know, when you're the uh, kind of big fish in the small pond racing, just local races or um, even just national level races in the US, it's quite different than racing in World Cup fields uh, for the entire spring. So I think it was kind of a, uh, an aggressive start back to racing for me after a year away with the pandemic. And um, in hindsight, I think they were, you know, good, good performances for me. But obviously, the second half of the season did not go quite to plan. And I would say that's something that uh, definitely gets talked about and worked out with my coaching team with myself, and then we make a new blueprint.
0: Yeah. And what's the difference for you when you're racing? I mean, talk about, uh, you know, between being on the podium and being the top 10 in some of the races, especially when you're you're talking about when you're under 23, you're having some mistakes or kind of a great, not a great day. You'd be have a chance to still fight back for the podium, but between the top three and the top 10 uh, the difference that, that separates you on any given day. Um, would you say that it has primarily to do with that building of the plane back then, or is it small decisions on that day What's that like? I always see you starting up in the front. That's your goal, um, you know. And then there's many riders, so you'll never hear over near the back. What's it like, say, between the the top three racers, and then the in the finding yourself in the top ten?
1: Yeah, I mean, you can tell from, from TV that elite races are just much closer together. So there's just a lot more women that are at that kind of pointy end of the race and separated by um, smaller time gaps. But to be honest, I can't really answer that question because it's yeah. so race dependent. It, it really depends on the day, on your fitness, on your form, on the technical course, on the competition, on the weather. Um, right. And there's so many factors that it's really about being able to get all of those pieces to come together in the way that you want on the day in the moment. And, you know, there's, there's no very clear recipe for doing so.
0: Okay. I'll get very specific. Then I was rewatching the video and I watched it when you won the 200 2018 world championship. And, you know, I, I, my, I was getting an ab workout just watching the, the the power that it took to get up those Rudy sections of slipping. And then when you made the pass for that, uh, tell me, tell me about that. Well, about that day for you, I, uh, I guess the day is too long of a, of a time, but when you're in the last lap or two when you're realizing that you're trying to bring her back in um, the mental aspect of holding on after that moment, uh, tell me a little bit about that 2018 victory.
1: Yeah, I guess from the, uh, the mental aspect that you asked about, I, I get asked a lot about, you know, what were you thinking about in that moment? What, what were you thinking when you passed Annika? And uh, for me, the mental side of racing is often really about being super focused on specific progress process goals. Sorry. Uh, and for me the process goals in that race were based around focusing on the course, eating, drinking, pacing myself appropriately. Um, and that's a pretty full on task. So I think in that race, I, um, Felt really present in the moment, focused on what I was doing. And the things that were going through my mind were really like, okay, I need to ride this root section cleanly. I need to regroup here. Here's a spot I can take a deep breath. Here's a spot I need to dig. Uh, This is how I'm going to pace myself. And it was, you know, kind of the definition of preparation meets opportunity. I was incredibly prepared for that race, but I was also given the opportunity to kind of realize that potential and realize that uh preparation in the moment and of course that is still you know one of the greatest memories and races of my career
0: yeah and that moment i think that's that's the love that so many of us have for mountain biking both riding riding and racing is you you really can't get out of that moment and ride well anything could have gone wrong in those wet sections with a a slight slight mishap right um especially especially in wet in wet conditions
1: yeah, but I again, I would say, um, you know, some of it is, like, things just going well. Like, sometimes there's some force outside of our control that, you know, things fall in your direction or, or not. Uh, but there's also, I think, a huge role of deliberate practice and focused preparation, where if you are really focused in the moment on the task at hand, and you've prepared your mind and body to be able to do it, that you're increasing the likelihood that it will come together when you have that opportunity. Uh, and I often think about cycling as, you know, training gives you a chance. It does not give you any guarantee, but you have no chance if you're unprepared. Uh, and in those races, we're really just, we're training, we're working, we're preparing, physically, mentally, technically, tactically, So that when that moment comes, you have a chance and you are ready to capitalize on it. But again, you know, it's kind of a brutal sport in some ways because there's no guarantee you'll have that chance. And then it's really up to you to be able to execute to the best of your ability when it counts the most.
0: And and how much of a help is it to be able to, to ride through the course with with Frischi and to look at the lines, the ups and the downs, to have someone to to break to break it down for you and, and help analyze it?
1: Well, twenty eighteen was before I joined the Scotts team, so I did not did not pre. I guess
0: it. I'm referring to yeah. not right, yeah,
1: yeah. Okay. In in general, um, it's it's incredibly helpful. I think you know there's a lot of precision that is involved in riding these courses fast and well. Uh, one thing that people I think often underappreciate is the role of riding these courses at the absolute limit. So they are pretty technical if you just ride them, but it's a completely different experience when you're fighting for air on the way up and then having to navigate. And in those cases, having a good plan, having good lines, having smooth line choices is absolutely essential to not just being fastest, but also conserving energy. And I think that's where Frishi's incredibly smart, incredibly experienced. And I'm lucky enough that he shares that experience with me.
0: Yeah, I've noticed the the technical nature of the of the, especially in the rock gardens that they're building in on, on purpose and and knowing having race to like you mentioned to be at your absolute limit on the climb and then to have to descend those smoothly. That's 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 it's it's no small ask. It doesn't go unnoticed, let's say. <laughs> um so tell me uh, as an athlete um nowadays there's a lot of people that are are viewing you and interviewing athletes it used to be maybe an, an article now and then but now you have to be an ambassador to so many different things and I'm wondering what that's what's that's like for you I you know last time I when I talked to Ted King and, and Pete Stetton I asked them the same thing where you're you're managing this perception and not only managing the perception but but you know, a chance, a chance to tell your story and, and to share the process, which is the positive and the flip side is that. You, if you have half a million followers, you have, you know, half a million people having opinions of things. And, and I'm wondering how you see the positives and negatives of the space as a professional athlete in, in today's, in today's, um, social media.
1: Yeah, it's definitely a, a complicated question to answer, but I will do my best to summarize. Um, Let's start with the positive. On the positive side, I think, you know, when I started posting on a social media account, taking pictures on my rides, I really didn't have necessarily a goal in doing so. I just felt this pull to share my love for the sport and, you know, share what I was doing mostly with friends and people I knew. Uh, And now it has expanded a bit beyond that. But I would say, you know, I, I think a lot about what, my relationship with social media should be. I think at its best, it's a reflection of my dedication to the sport, of how hard I work to, you know, pursue mastery and something that I love to do and that I feel connects me with people around the world, in my community, uh, in my family. It's it's really um a reflection of those things, I think, at its best, and hopefully inspires people to do the same, to get out and ride, to share that with people they love, um, and to, yeah, engage with that kind of process in a way that's really fun and interesting. and and as an athlete is is fun to tell, I think. Um, I would also say from the female athlete side, being able to control your own story and share your own narrative and have some place that I can speak honestly, openly, authentically, um, directly to the people who support me and who share my passion for the sport is a huge gift. And I think um, that gives you a lot of control over what you put out and uh, what you choose to share about your journey and your sport. And um, I think that's something that female athletes in the past have not necessarily had, particularly in a media landscape that's um, been pretty gendered. So I am grateful for that opportunity and that platform to be able to share what's important to me and and show a little behind the scenes of that process, which clearly has some ups and downs. Um, And then I would say, you know, on the negative side, there definitely is, I I think, a complicated conversation that we're all having around the role of social media in the lives, particularly of young women, I see, um, where it is kind of a, a fake reflection of life, even when, you know, I shared with you earlier, we were talking about the gym, and I, you know, genuinely, am in the gym, my strength coach is taking those videos, and they go up on the internet. And it's, it's really what I'm doing. But it's not me. It's this kind of moment captured of what i'm doing and it's highly controlled you know as as we mentioned i'm training way more on the bike than i am in the gym i just don't really take pictures of it as much uh and so that's a great example of how it is not a true reflection of reality or a true encapsulation of who we are as people even as much as we try to like share authentically um and that's kind of the the outward maybe negative side of it. But I also think as individuals consuming this kind of world that is not reality uh, can be a little detrimental. And of course, the kind of negative comments and negative posting uh, that happens on social media is something that really needs to be managed and and reflected on. And for me, I think... I've, I've had time to do that. I obviously have to do it on a little bit of a bigger scale because when I post things, I am getting uh, feedback often from many of those half a million people who would like to comment on it. Um, but I think for me, it's been a challenge to really be clear on what I'm sharing and why I'm sharing it. And also on what I'm willing to accept feedback on. And I think that's something... Um, that's important to be able to do. And we're in a world where you're getting so much information, so much feedback. And I guess we can take my, you know, 2021 season as a perfect example of that. There's a lot of people on the internet who would like to tell me why I didn't have a great race season last year. Uh, And for me, like, obviously I know it was not a great experience, but, and, and I'm super invested in having a great season next year and in learning from that. But that learning is not going to happen in that environment. It happens with coaches, with team members, with seeking out experts, with reflecting on my own process and my own training um, that people really don't see at all. People have no idea what I did for intervals or how many hours I trained or when I took rest days or what amount of strength training I did. Um, And so I think it's just being really clear on when you're willing to accept that feedback and to like, let it permeate the armor and also having the um, ability to say, no, like that's not useful to me right now. It's not helpful to me right now. It's not a way that I need to engage Um, and being able to kind of protect yourself in that way. So I know that was a lot of different things on social media, but I think it is a really nuanced Thing and something that requires a lot of conversation and reflection, and will likely change many, many more times in my lifetime.
0: Well, I, I really appreciate the the thoughtful and, and and deep answer to that because it is a big question, you know, um, of how we manage our our presence on on social media, and for young people, um, you know, I have a teenage daughter and and teach high school and and having taught through COVID uh, and we're ta- with, with mental health, health, and perception, you know, for us uh, being older, we have relationships with people and we, we know who our, our friends are. We can, friends and followers, like I tell people, I don't really want anyone to follow me. <laughs> it feels more like stalking. I know following in the business sense is important, but you, you mentioned those whose input and opinions and, and criticisms and critiques matter to you, right? I think uh, it's important to have that baseline to know that and then with social media. But prior to that, uh, it, it's risky because we are wired to care what people think. That's, we just, we just are, but who are those people? Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's an important part of the discussion.
1: Well, and, and also I think I had some interesting insights this year around, you know, I think on social media, the, the good comments that resonate and the bad comments that resonate are truly reflections of the way that we are feeling about a situation. Um, and I definitely see that on a, a big scale of response, but you know, some good examples are some of the races I had this year. If I, um, um, you know, Nova Meso is a great example. That's a race where I fell, I broke my arm, I broke my brake lever, I got a flat, and I finished, what, 40th, 42nd? So terrible result on paper, but I was incredibly proud of that race. I got up, I lost so much time. I passed 57 people and I had top 10 lap times at the end of the race for the yeah. last three laps with a broken arm. So for me, great race. And in that, that feeling, in that state, If someone says I did a good job, I feel it. I feel really proud. I feel someone says I was a role model of their kid. I feel it. I feel good about that. And if someone says, oh, you like suck. You were winning before and now you're 40th. I say, oh, they don't understand. Right. Right. And the inverse can be true in a race where, I mean, to get into it, the Olympics, was a terrible race for me. It was just a really bad performance. I did not feel good about it. I did not feel good in the race. And it was a huge disappointment. And a huge amount of the response I got was super positive. Like, hey, you're an Olympian. You made it to the Olympics. That's more than many people do, blah, blah, blah. But that, similarly, those positive comments didn't really resonate. And the negative comments would uh, in that experience because I didn't feel great about it. Uh, And I think that... Having that ability, that self-awareness to understand that, yeah, if, you, if you're really seeking out true feedback, you need to do it from people who know you, know the whole story and whose opinions really matter to you. And those people are probably going to be in the real world, not on your phone. Uh, and when those comments do resonate, if they are something that you read or that you're exposed to, it, it really is something about you, I think for me at least. You know, it it's it's triggering something within me. And so then I need to instead of going external and responding always to those comments or seeing them as something that I need to deal with to acknowledge them for what they are and work through whatever is underlying that uncomfortable reaction or challenging interaction.
0: Absolutely. That's, that's beautiful. And, and I want to commend and and thank you for, for writing. And and you were talking about telling your own story. And I think that first of all, the rising with Kate Courtney series is, is spectacular. It's real. It's authentic. Uh, You're getting to tell the story about the, the, whether it's the bike equipment, whether it's the preparation, mental physical, you're bringing in the cast of characters who are supporting you. And then in the articles, you're, you're using your voice, um, to talk about these things and, and that's immensely important so i want to thank you for putting the time and energy into that that's that's time that's not training
1: thank you yeah well we we do have some time off the bike <laughs>
0: <laughs> right so one of the things i was reading your article writing about the olympics is is you talked about being trapped in a, in a prison of expectation and that's not just in the olympics but but as an athlete um you know you won the world championship in your first year in elite, and then you won the world cup the next year. Um, What's it like having, I mean, those would have been, you could have raced for 10 years with those as a goal, yet you accomplished those in your first two years. So tell me about that. When you have those expectations, which you want to have, you, you, you obviously you have very high expectations for yourself and setting those goals is, is what it's all about. But what it's like when you talk about being trapped in that, tell me about, a little bit about what that feels like, as opposed to just like having a a, a goal.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, different athletes might resonate with that in different ways. For me, um, you know, my, my outcome goals, let's call them, you know, the results goals, the what place you cross the finish line goal. It can be a really useful way to motivate yourself, to measure your progress Uh, as you're working your way up in a sport. So for me, that was super motivating. You know, I mentioned earlier the kind of eighth, fourth, second, first working your way up. However, uh, that metric can only last for so long. And at a certain point when the metric becomes winning every time, that can be something that you need to change your relationship to. And I think for me, um, my greatest kind of, motivator in the sport is not necessarily the result it's really that feeling of mastery and pride that comes when you are able to individually put each of those pieces of preparation into place which alone is a huge feat that's a lot of work a lot of planning a lot of showing up every single day and doing your job and then to have them come together under pressure when it matters most and i think for me you know, as my race has continued to not represent that or or be that experience, um, my expectations stayed quite high and that was a really challenging mismatch. Uh, But I also think it's part of becoming a more experienced racer is being able to reinvent that relationship to outcomes and to understand that, of course, we are striving for these results. They matter not only personally, Um, But also business wise as a professional racer, like you're being paid to race at a certain level, um, but that they're really not everything and that they can be a little bit of a trap in some ways, especially um, when the pressure is kind of built up around certain events and certain days where it may or may not go your way and you may or may not show up um, with everything you need to be successful in the way that you'd hoped.
0: Yeah. And I, I really enjoy following Brad as well with this post with you guys and, and um, the humor, um, the behind the scenes. And I'm and I'm wondering, you know, you guys, is that help take the edge off of, of of the seriousness of it? He seems he's there with you all the time. He he has he has your ear. Tell me a little bit about him, as I don't know much about him other than what I'm seeing him post in some of the videos, but it seems like there's great chemistry as part of your core support group
1: yeah definitely i have an amazing team around me brad included and we've worked together um for what five years now six years now so so quite a long time that we've been working directly together um and now this will be the fourth season that he's working just with me as his athlete so yeah, very close working relationship um, and friendship outside of the race circuit. So I'm I'm really lucky and grateful to have him. He's incredibly um, skilled at his job. He keeps my bikes mint, and uh, and also works with me to dial things in based on my feedback and the way that I feel in the races. And that I think is something that's underappreciated about. Mechanics at that level is that it's not just, you know, setting it up it's setting it up for me perfectly for me uh, and for conditions on a course on a given day. So he's incredibly important to that performance side of things. But I think also in general, just having really great, supportive, um, fun people around, especially when you're spending a lot of days on the road is a huge help.
0: So I want to ask you one more thing about the mental part of it. So the idea of this podcast is like the, the inside the mind of the, of the ridden athlete. And um, for me, it can, it can be a lonely place um, as, as an athlete. Um, but like you mentioned, having those, those people there to help you. Um, what do you, what could you comment on our brains being wired to to fixate on the negative? And I take this a quote from something you wrote, but it's something I thought about Now, by the negative. I might think, it, again, this maybe this comes back to depending what space you're in and who it's from or if it's from us, but when we're setting goals, we're looking to improve. We're looking at things that we can improve on, maybe didn't do as as well. Is that fixating on the negative or is that just an obstacle to to improve? Like as an athlete, is it a block to us those the the negative thoughts or is it something to challenge us to move beyond that? And and I'll leave it there.
1: Yeah, I think it depends a bit by what you mean by negative thoughts. I think um, rational performance evaluation is not negative. I think that's just um, a huge part of, of what we do. And uh, I think it can actually be incredibly motivating to identify weaknesses or maybe challenges that you can improve on in the future. And that's just, uh, in my opinion, a huge part of the process of racing. Um, it's also true that in a racing career, you're, you're destined to lose a lot more races than you win. So if you don't have that ability to kind of use failure as feedback and use that negativity as a direction forward, um, then it, it might be a more negative experience for you. So I actually think that can be, um, a good thing. I would say in terms of kind of the, the negative voice dialogue, that's something that, um, you know, early in my career, I would say, I thought of mental strength and fortitude as really a character trait, like something that you were kind of born with. You know, like you're the little kid at the um, at the ski practice who's like going up for extra runs and like always doing the extra work and pushing through. And it's something that's like an innate characteristic. That's kind of how I saw it. And that's probably because I was that like tough, gritty kid. Um, but I realized pretty quickly in my career when I was a U-23 that that was not true and that that would fail me. That way of thinking would fail me. Uh, because in reality, I now believe that mental strength and mental fortitude is really a skill that you practice. It's not a trait that you're born with. It's something that you actively work on and that you put into practice every time you swing a leg over the bike, really anytime you do anything in your life. Um, And that can look like different things at different times on different days. It might be setting good goals. It might be having a mantra, having, um, you know, a way to reframe the dialogue with yourself, but that is something that, you know, may come more naturally to other people uh, may be easier for one person or another. And it may be, you know, something you're more inclined to be as a child. But for me, I think um, it really is that that skill. And it, it can look very different. You know, I think I had that typical idea of what it looks like to be gritty as a kid. And in fact, you know, you can be gritty in anything you do. It's not just a sport and, you know, brute force and pushing forward and always taking the hard path. Like, There's ways to be gritty and mentally tough and strong and to practice that skill um, in the classroom, on the bike, just in training, in anything you do. Uh, And so in response to that kind of negative voices, negative framing piece, I would say that that's kind of just a part of life um, and that, you know, as athletes, it can be one of the greatest things that you unlock is to is to start to practice that skill of mental toughness and mental strength and to make that a part of your cycling practice and of your life.
0: Future superstars out there. You hear that? <laughs> what do they say? You miss a hundred, you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take, right? Absolutely. So to speak. Uh, I have one other question for you that looking at my notes about the Olympics, we were talking about that. And I'm wondering what it was like for you and, maybe you could comment on other athletes as well, it was a very strange Olympics in that you didn't have the experience of so much the social and the Olympic village. And so for you, it was, for the athletes, it was a a very short period of time there and then you had to pack up and leave. Um, Was that particularly difficult for you in that not having Olympics you wanted and then it was kind of truncated, but you didn't get the after party. wasn't Jeff Kabush drinking shots with the other basketball players. What was it like for you having the the COVID version of the Olympics?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you summarized that it was just a weird uh, Olympics, but I've never been before. So I don't know that I necessarily have something to compare it to. Um, But for me, I, I was not really focused on that at the Olympics. I was really there to compete and to perform. And so that was kind of my key focus. And uh, to be entirely honest, it didn't really matter to me what happened around me as long as I was uh, able to really focus on that performance and um, doing what I went there to do, which is ride my bike.
0: Well, in four years from now, we'll have this conversation again. We'll talk about your first Olympics, which was this one that just happened. Okay. Um, so I want to segue into a little segment I have. It's called This or That. And it's just, I'm going to give you a choice of things and you're going to, whichever one comes to mind yeah. first. Okay. Not not too deep. I'll keep I'll I'll be nice to you. So uh, A line or B line? A line. Climb or descend? Climb. Heat or cold? Heat. Sunrise or sunset? Sunset. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Much less hesitation than anyone I've spoken to, I must say. I don't know what that means.
1: Decisive. I'm a decisive lady.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Movies or books? Books. Cats or dogs? Dogs. Astronaut or sailor? Astronaut. Have to or get to?
1: Get to. Okay,
0: here's a real hard one. Tacos or tacos?
1: Tacos. 100%. (laughs)
0: I knew that. That All right. That's awesome. So we've talked about the past and we've talked about the present. Tell me what's, what's in store for Kate Courtney uh, next season.
1: Yeah. Really excited to uh, kick over to the new year and get started racing again. We have nine world cups or I guess eight world cups and world championships. So it's going to be a pretty packed season. Um, And I'm just, I'm looking forward to lining up again and bringing it for 2022.
0: And uh, that was very short. Are there any, is it just starting to fill out your schedule in terms of what's going to be the priority? Or is it the the length of the World Cup is going to be the whole season's your goal?
1: The World Cups are definitely the priority. There'll be some other races, probably Pan American championships, um, some U.S. Cup races. Is there anything else? I mean, that that schedule is pretty busy, actually, uh, with the World Cups, and they go till September. So that's going to be a a pretty packed full on sequence of events. But um, yeah, we'll we'll see how the other kind of races. And then of course, we have some big training camps coming up in January, February, uh, to get ready for that. So it should be a pretty busy spring and summer.
0: That's awesome. And uh, let's not forget January 30th. if that fits in there, that will be, be low gap. I have a great photo. I don't, I'll don't. have to find it somewhere with you. It was the three, it was Kate, Kate, nee and Kate, uh, yourself and Katie Hall and Katerina Nash at the old CAS, the last one we got to have. That was sadly the last um, old CAS because of uh, county permits on, on that road. But wow. for me, it was great to have you out. I think that was the first year that you came out and to have a uh, mountain biker, and a road racer, and well, Katarina's everything. So an all
1: around c- her.
0: <laughs> right, a cyclocross, a cross-country skier um, on the podium kind of embodies all that. And you won the world championship that year, and I remind Katie Hall that she won North American Cyclist of the Year, so I'm trying to get Katie down as well.
1: Awesome. Yeah, we yeah. miss her down here for sure.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks so much for your time, Kate. I wish you the best of luck in your training this winter and uh, for a phenomenal campaign next year.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much. And hopefully uh, see you at a few events in the spring.
0: Okay. Cheers.